Welcome to episode 127, Introducing a Field Manual for Military Parents, a review for practitioners working with military-connected families, featuring Dr. Alan Sherman, licensed clinical psychologist. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn. Grow. Shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and today we are going to be talking about supporting military parents. I am very interested in this topic and delighted to be joined by Dr. Alan Sherman. He is a child, adolescent, and family psychologist and has worked exclusively with military families during his career. And he's actually joining us today from Guam because that's part of his story is being part of the military. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Sherman. Uh, You're welcome. Thank you for uh, uh, having me here. So, Alan, why don't you take a minute and tell us a bit about your background and how you came to have this particular specialization of working with military families? Well, uh, when I was uh, looking forward to uh, graduate school, uh, I picked Georgia State University because it had family in the title of the program. Um, uh, most child programs, clinical programs, had just child clinical psychology. Uh, Georgia State was the only one in the country at the time, uh, some many decades ago, uh, that uh, uh, had family in the program, uh, in the title. And so that was an emphasis on systemic contextual aspects. Uh, and I really wanted to include that as part of my uh, career. Uh, and so that was uh, an important lens through which I see things. Um, however, uh, shortly after graduation, uh, getting my PhD and licensed, uh, I had an opportunity to have a position in Germany uh, to work with military families overseas. Uh, I took that in 1999, and uh, it's where I have built my career. I uh, lived most of my life working with uh, in and around military bases. Um, uh, mostly overseas in remote locations. Uh, so uh, uh, I've had a unique aspect of working with them in unique locations. Uh, Germany, I did come back to the States, Fort Campbell, for a couple years, uh, went back to Germany, and then now have found myself in this uh, interesting place of Guam, uh, where it's got a pretty heavy military population. So I'm curious, like, how... Do you come from a military family, or was this... My dad was in the military, um, uh, but he uh, left the military way before I was born, but it was always part of my background. I uh, uh, would sit and watch uh, uh, World War II movies with my dad. That was one of the ways that we connected. Uh, uh, but when it got to the point in time where I was of age, he was absolutely not a good fit for me. Um, I don't think I would have done well in the military. The, the kind of skills that military members have are pretty impressive to be able to put up with a lot of things and a lot of personal pressures and be still dedicated to the mission. I, I was uh, much too empathic and emotional uh, for that, uh, but um, have a deep respect for service, um, uh, the deep respect for uh, a higher calling, and many people uh, uh, join the military for that purpose, to do something way beyond themselves and to serve their country, to serve uh, others, and to do good in the world um, uh, in a very different way than I might have identified it at the time, um, but now have come to deeply respect it and appreciate it. Uh, so, also both my both my grandparents were in World War One as well. Um, so long time ago they served. Uh, uh, so there is again deep intergenerational uh, connection. 
And I would imagine for many of our listeners that that's also true. I know for me, my grandparents and uncles as well also served in the military. My mom was what she will proudly say, a military brat. Mm -hmm. Um, So I have, while I wasn't raised as a military brat, have absolutely had the exposure and reverberations of what it meant to lose my grandfather in service Mm -hmm. um, and things like that. So I'm actually very excited for this topic and I'm sure our listeners are as well because so many of us come from families that have military histories. For sure. So let's start there. What can you tell me about military families that distinguishes them from civilian families? Um, Before we get fully started, I I do because I'm a uh, have to put out a disclaimer. Sorry, I didn't say this earlier. The disclaimer is that any content I present is solely my own and not uh, representing any uh, uh, viewpoint or conclusion that the Department of Defense or the government uh, has put out there. So this is just my thoughts, my feelings, and represents me uh, as a professional over time and nothing with the Department of Defense. Um, uh, but... Um, I think one of the things that I've come to recognize about uh, military families over time, and both in my reading of the research, but also just hearing the stories of uh, families, um, is that the military families are uh, really, they're no different than civilian families as far as the people themselves. I mean, they're people. So people are people. General uh, rules apply. Uh, general principles of human behavior, human interaction, uh, vulnerabilities as both well strengths, and uh, they're the same. Um, uh, so that's one of the things that I would, uh, I guess, try to emphasize here is we're talking about people. Um, uh, but one of the things that is interesting about military families is that they live and work within probably the most diverse organizational structure and one of the diverse populations of, uh, of a workforce uh, and a community. Um, the U.S. military attracts people from around the world, not just citizens. Uh, there are people from every single continent uh, except Antarctica. Uh, they don't hire penguins yet. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, there, I've worked with people from Asia, from Africa, Europe, uh, uh, Australia, all who wear our, uh, the United States military uniform. Um, every different background that you can think of is represented. So that is one of the unique distinctions. Most people live and work in relatively uh, uniform type settings um, or with some minor variation, but that's a, that's a critical distinction um, uh, to make. Also, though, they're maybe one of the most mobile uh, uh, communities. They're moving around all the time, and we'll get into more of the implications of that. Um, but that's a distinction. Um, another distinction, too, is that uh, I, I kind of realized that, oh, wait, I'm working with a population that everyone has a job. Uh, civilian families, you know, you go work in a community, and not everyone would have a job. You might have homeless or, or unemployed or uh, groups, of, particularly now. Through COVID, uh, one of those things is that everyone had a steady income uh, through this whole thing. So that's an important distinction to make through all of the ups and downs. If you're in the military, you have a job. Um, but then also, uh, one of the interesting things about mobility that distinguishes military families from civilian families is the separation from extended family. 
Um, I read uh, uh, an article in the New York Times that came up, and it really struck me that uh, uh, the majority of American adults live within 45 minutes of their mother. Wow, I live in Guam. <laughs> and your mom does not. My, my mom does not live in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> Um, she's in St. Louis. And so, uh, and, and if I look around at the most of the people that I talk with, they are way more, they are thousands of miles away from their parent, not 45. And even though America has become more mobile over time, this is still a statistic that holds true. And that 45 miles is in Nevada, in the Western region, not, uh, not in the uh, Northeast where it's down to, I think, somewhere around 23 miles or something like that. And so, uh, um, that is one of the distinguishing aspects of it. Um, but along with that, though, they are automatically part of this network of, uh, of a larger family of uh, the military, whatever branch they're in or whatever. They have people who, as soon as you say, I'm a military family, and someone else says, I am too, there can be an immediate connection. Um, uh, Another thing is that based on status, based on your your connection to this organization, military families have dedicated resources to them. There's a variety of resources that they can provide because um, uh, the government wants to give resources to this population. So that that's an important uh, uh, thing to consider, as well as having guaranteed health care. Um, there's, uh, uh, you know, I talk to, to other colleagues in which their civilian population does not have health care or it's difficult, they have to pay out of pocket. This is all available to them. So that is something to identify. Um, but... I think maybe in the civilian sector, there are subpopulations in which the jobs are inherently risky. But for the military, every job is inherently risky. Like in the army, every person is first a rifleman. I don't care if you're personnel, wherever, you need to be prepared uh, to fire a weapon in combat, should it come to that. Um, uh, if you're on a ship, it doesn't matter if you're a cook or whatever, you are on the front lines, regardless of your combat role. Uh, Air Force the same. Uh, you know, you may be at a base, but you could be long away. So there is inherent risk. And in, so that's just a physical risk aspect of these things. Um, but also parents are frequently absent, much more so than your average civilian sector job. Uh, absent for unpredictable times, lengths of time, uh, lots of things. So that adds some stressors. Um, and then uh, uh, there are fewer actual, uh, actually there are fewer single parents than the civilian population as well, based on the demands of the military, even though the divorce rate may be higher. Uh, the uh, uh, people are more quickly to remarry um, uh, within the military. Um, I'm not exactly sure why that is. There's a lot of hypotheses why. Um, but just know that that is one of those aspects, is that there are fewer sets of uh, uh, families with just single parents. That's a lot of information that you just presented, <laughs> sure. and, and I'm t- trying to process it. And so, so military families and just exposure in the workplace. So you said more diverse; they tend to be more mobile. Mm-hmm. More folks are employed, so the people you're seeing in your office have stable employment, as you mentioned, healthcare access, and that separation from extended family. 
that last part, like that separation from extended family, I would imagine has a huge impact on the development of community within military yes. systems. Can you speak a little bit about that and kind of the um, uh, chosen family, if you will, that, yeah. that would occur in military families? Actually, there's some uh, interesting uh, information out there and hypotheses that uh, a woman by the name of Lynn Hall, who used to be a counselor at a DODIA uh, Department of Defense Education Activity School overseas, now a civilian counselor, but uh, wrote about um, there being five types of families in the military. Um, one, of course, is your nuclear family. The, the people you have around you, you have your extended family who are beyond, obviously, the ones who are distant. But then you have your military unit. Every unit owns their people. Of course, people come in and out all the time, but part of leadership training is to say you own your people and you develop a, a, a sense of connectedness and family just by status in that unit. And there are things such as in the army, the uh, family resource group. Uh, so often spouses or people connected to that military member will uh, develop a parallel family resource group that's attached to that unit to provide support for uh, dependents who come in there. And so that can be seen as a family by status rather than necessarily chosen. Um, but then you have neighborhood families. Um, so wherever you find yourself located, then often your uh, uh, um, family becomes part of who you run into in the neighborhood. Who do you live next to? Who's your uh, uh, apartment or suite uh, uh, neighbor, um, uh, house neighbor, those kinds of things. And also, if you're living on base, there are usually uh, uh, responsibilities that they have for upkeep. And so there's a little bit of a group of someone who leads the upkeep and policing of the, uh, of the neighborhood lawns, making sure almost like a, uh, uh, OHA, um, but, uh, uh, but as a, uh, or a homeowner's, um, homeowner's, uh, group. But so it's a neighborhood group. But then in general, a branch. So the service branch becomes your larger family. I'm a Navy family. I'm an Army or Air Force or Coast Guard uh, family. Uh, and so then you have this connectedness to this uh, branch. So those are different uh, families that you could get connected to. But again, the frequent moves create stresses in how quickly do you engage and how deeply do you feel connected to them uh, and how... Uh, uh, and how real are those families? You know, you're away from your extended family. How can you really utilize them as a resource if you're 3,000 miles, 5,000 miles away from them? Um, your nuclear family becomes much more important, and everything that happens in there becomes almost, it's almost like a crucible of stress. Not just they rely on each other strongly, but when something goes wrong, it can be really destabilizing because they really, uh, they're the only ones who move around with each other. The military unit can have conflict, right? Any job, uh, you know, you throw a bunch of people together and uh, the, any stress in that military unit, if you don't feel connected to that or you're maybe the target of some hazing or, uh, or, or whatever, you don't rank in status, then that can be distressing. Or if somehow you don't connect with naturally with those folks in your neighborhood, you can be isolated. Um, and so... Even though there are all these potential areas of connection, there are multiple layers of potential isolation that are different 
from uh, in a, a military family than a civilian family. Uh, those include geographic that we've already been talking about. Uh, social isolation, just I'm not connected to these people. I don't have deep connections. Um, and again, that goes into kind of emotional isolation. Um, uh, the more frequently I move, uh, the less likely I am to develop deeper connections. Um, I may pretend to get deeper, but I'm tired of continuing to find new connections um, over time. Uh, but then there's cultural isolation too. If you are in a stable location through your life, you develop community and uh, community that is more culturally aligned with yourself. And when you're in a diverse group, uh, a diverse organization, and you're moving around a lot, it may be harder to find that cultural connectedness um, over time. And so those are the four levels of isolation or varieties of isolation that can, uh, I think, providers need to be sensitive to. I can hear that then the importance on the nuclear family, again, being consistent in weathering those changes together, and then also the the branch at large as being a major source of connection and, and identity yeah. when there are all these other changes, like you mentioned about moving areas. So when we zoom in through families and look really at the parenting, mm-hmm. there are really unique challenges experienced by military parents. Yeah. And we'll get to military kids. But can you start start by talking about kind of the challenges that military parents face? Well, just structurally, because their work demands are pretty high, they have to worry about their care plan. Now, that's not unique, obviously, because civilians have to do that all the time. However, uh, the nature of their job is that they don't have necessarily set schedules. Um, uh, the mission comes first for military families and the military member, and so uh, they may be... Um, uh, so instead of an eight-hour day or nine-hour day or ten-hour day, sometimes it would be 12, 14, 15, whatever, and if there's a brief push taskers that come on, it's not necessarily planned. Um, uh, it's unpredictable what the demands of that. So having a flexible care plan, not just a care plan for their children is really critical. And military missions are no fail. So the, the pressure is not a lot of forgiveness if that mission comes through that you have to show up. So that balance of what the, uh, what the pressures of the job are and how do I care for my children are there. When you say no fail, for people that aren't familiar with what that means, can you talk more about like the concept of no fail? Well, no fail. Uh, military missions are life or death. They are national security. And uh, uh, the leadership basically says, if our country is asking us to do this, then we cannot fail. And good good luck finding care for your kindergarten. Yes, and exactly. <laughs> we need you. And so that means how you care for your family is related to the mission and readiness. It's not just about uh, improving your profit margin. This is, I think that's the distinction that I think a lot uh, about with um, uh, the mission, is that that existential and uh, uh, duty to country, truly existential issue, is kind of uh, a cultural factor within the military that is not typically seen in most civilian sector positions. Um, so again, being separate from children is a burden on parents as well. 
you know, that significant separation from your uh, uh, extended family, worrying about how being separate from my extended family, grandma, grandpa, etc., how that might affect my children, um, worrying about how to support children through every single new transition moving from time to time, uh, that stressor on a parent about, you know, transitioning and you'll hear the term PCS it's called a permanent change of station when's your PCS date permanent change of station people are thinking about that um, uh, constantly when are my orders when am I going to move and all of these things how am I going to address my educational challenges with my children through this move and so those are all these different challenges that are going on in a parent's mind um, <clears throat> Think about this, uh, if a, a military parent has uh, 20 years in service, often people want that goal of retiring from the military because there are benefits from that. That usually hits uh, at 20 years. There, a family is going to go through at least six moves. I mean, the average number of moves for a civilian family is much less than that, and if they move, they may move within the same community as opposed to be in three or four different continents uh, through that history. So for those of us who are civilians, when it comes to being given a permanent change of station, how much warning on average do parents have, do people in general have to know, okay, now I'm going to pick up and we're moving wherever it is? When you arrive in a new location, you know the term that you're generally slated to be there. So it's a predictable transition. And you, but about a year before your next transition, you start putting in selections for your next duty station. Six months, you hope to get order, not orders, but at least the location of where you're going. And then you start the wait for orders. And so there is, while predictable, there are a lot of variables that go on that are levels of anxiety that are in the background of a family's life. So there's that just ambient anxiety about when is the next move or where are we actually going to go or exactly what date um you know so and often it could be in april not not summertime these moves are not planned for a children's educational uh progress so that there may be challenges with regard to transitioning from one school to another and how that relates to the accrual of credits in high school or whatever. I'm imagining for for parents and, and also then for the kids, these waves of grief and anticipatory grief, finding new relationships, pulling back from relationships, kind of a self-protective cocooning to try to prepare for the next transition and just these, as you said, kind of continual sources of anxiety. Well, yeah, and that kind of relates to the children's stressors because we're talking about parents' stressors and their concerns for the kids and the things that they have to think about. But the kids, while they're going through normal development and have a variable set of cognitive and emotional skills to deal with each new stressor, um, uh, they're having to deal with these pile-up of losses. And there's good research from, a, uh, again, pile-up of stressors over time that results in vulnerability to uh, things such as anxiety disorder or aggression or uh, those kinds of things because unresolved loss over time, uh, uh, and if they pile up fast and quick and over time at different developmental levels, can play out into problematic behaviors and emotional adjustment. 
So for kids that are in that position, what are the protective factors when they're exposed to loss after loss, you know, changing schools again, changing friend groups? I think uh, intentionality, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, intentionality of parents in guiding that. Uh, uh, there is a resource that I'll talk about at the end, but Military Child Education Coalition has a lot of support for transitioning and a lot of guidance for how to support kids and help prepare kids for those transitions. This is one of the things that is actually fairly well known about military kids, and so there's a lot of effort to try to help kids be more resilient. Um, however, I do think that it's a myth that uh, military kids are, quote-unquote, more resilient than civilian kids. They're, they're kids. They're just given a greater opportunity to demonstrate resilience or more frequent opportunities to become vulnerable to those stressors, um, which then relates to the fact that actually there's a 30% uh, at least one time, it's a it's it, some time ago. Rand did a Rand Corporation did a um, study comparing military kids to civilian kids, and that there was a thirty percent higher rate of anxiety disorders among military kids, as well as a twenty five percent higher rate of uh, behavioral problems uh, than civilian kids, um, and that's in spite of the protective factors of every parent has a job, uh, healthcare all those things. I think the stressors of this pileup of transitions on kids plays out in those uh, higher rates of uh, anxiety and behavior disorder. When you mentioned that the parents are employed, for most military parents that are in a committed relationship, is there significant other then also in the military? Like how do you know the rates of like how often you have a military person that is um, in a long-term relationship with someone who's non-military? Um, most, uh, majority of uh, uh, military families are comprised of a military member with a uh, dependent who is not military. Although there are dual military families, for sure, um, the stressors on a dual military family are uh, greater because both are committed to the military. Both uh, parents could be uh, sent to duty at the drop of a hat, and then you have to juggle what are the implications of child care for that. Um, but I think an additional stressor for parents, um, particularly for the uh, non-military parent, the dependent parent, is that they're often under uh, underemployed. Um, they're more transient. They don't get to establish uh, experience in one location or uh, the job might not be available as soon as they hit a new location so that they could get the highest level that they could. Licensure for nursing, for example, or teaching varies by state. And so uh, reciprocity is not always there. Um, and so you often get people uh, who are underemployed, which is, a, I think, a invisible hidden stressor for that dependent parent. Within the military, I mean, you and I could talk for a very long time about cultural norms and yeah. why they're there. Um, having had um, service people in in my family, married into my family, and mm -hmm. in in my family history, those norms about how old you are at first marriage being different than the civilian population. And, sure. and as I say that, you smile. So there are these norms that exist. How do these norms military culture impact parenting um, and and then let's kind of talk about what's different for a family and how they're parenting kids, how kids are growing up, what they're exposed to, what their access to resources might be, things like that. So 
again, within the military culture, um, I think it attracts different people and you'd have to go to a recruiter to really break that down. I haven't, uh, uh, that's not, um, something that I have full expertise, but I can tell you that, um, uh, when the, when people get married, because there is support for families in the military, uh, often it's an easier decision to go ahead and get married. Um, it's also because of the, uh, transitions. Uh, it's harder to stay in a location and develop a relationship over time uh, that would sustain if an act if if a person meets an active duty military member. Um, there's a, only a short window of time that you are going to make a decision whether or not to sustain this until it becomes a long distance one. So somebody's here for three years, you meet them one and a half years in uh, into the tour, and then uh, you and they uh, uh, decide this is really important, but you're not quite ready to make a decision. Maybe you make that decision earlier because you're going to move with them. Uh, so there's an aspect again of that transition that impacts potential decision making about commitment. Um, uh, so there's uh, some cultural background aspects of that that it is uh, uh, normal to be married, you know, and in fact, uh, uh, as opposed to normal, say in a, uh, a professional world, to be single for much longer. Uh, there is definitely a, a norm and to some degree a cultural benefit to have dependence um, rather than be single. Uh, so, you know, often, uh, even though there's the old military uh, uh, drill sergeant, we didn't issue you a family uh, quote that you might hear in uh, movies, um, uh, there is some expectation, particularly among officers, but as you rank up, that what is your family doing for the military, not just what are you doing for the military? Absolutely. And that's, that is a phenomenon that I have watched, um, having a sibling who was in that position, having married into military and, and the, um, complexities of that role for a spouse is just very different and and coming from a, a what I'll call a majority civilian family coming into it going whoa like you you got a letter for doing what <laughs> right <laughs> and I'll and I'll talk about that in a second as well because of the impact uh the potential impact of any of one's dependence on one's military career um, that's not going to happen uh, if you work at Walmart or IBM or Apple. You know, your dependent isn't, you know, nobody's looking at your performance appraisal for what your dependent has done. Um, while that doesn't happen in the military as far as a uh, 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 fitness rep uh, uh, report or uh, uh, their evaluations, NCOERs and uh, OERs, those are acronyms, sorry about uh, performance appraisals within the military. Those are important acronyms to get to know when you work with them that you will hear these things. Um, uh, those not, I won't belabor as much, but, uh, but a, a key part of the military culture, again, I spoke about this before is the focus on readiness, even more so now than it was say 20 years ago, because of the churn of mission, uh, and the efficiency of use of, uh, uh, need political pressure to have efficient use of military dollars. Um, readiness is important. Um, and readiness means at the drop of a hat, you are ready to fight tonight, as they say. 
you're ready to go on the ship, go in the air, uh, be deployed to wherever you, uh, the military and the country asks you to be. Um, uh, and so readiness includes not just your physical readiness and training and all those things to do your mission, but is your family ready to tolerate your absence? And so that is clear and critical. So anything that happens within the family that takes a military member's time and attention away from their training and their mission could have an impact on their advancement or the location where they serve or their overall fitness for duty so that there is an occupational impact, a potential occupational impact for the overall health of uh, their family. So effectively what you're talking about is what I would call basically perception of readiness. And what are the factors that are impacting someone's actual readiness? So, uh, and, and here's just an example. Uh, I have the opportunity to uh, uh, evaluate young kids, uh, and actually throughout the age, on whether or not they have autistic processes. You know, are they on or can be identified as on the spectrum? Uh, through their development. Um, if I do, and they require a ton of resources uh, additional than a normal outpatient mental health facility can provide, on Guam, we don't have those resources. And the behavioral difficulties are so challenging that it would probably require that military member to spend more time at home supporting the, the caretaker spouse uh, to be able to address those developmental concerns. So it would require a consideration to relocate to a stateside duty station that would have the resources to support them. So they're not going to kick somebody out because of this, but they are going to relocate someone for the betterment of the readiness of this, say it's Air Force Airmen, uh, to get to a location so that the resources can support this family's needs so that that airman can safely, effectively do their job and feel at ease to go ahead and do it. How long does a consideration like that, like the example that you just gave of a child who's on the autism spectrum, you're someplace like Guam that those resources aren't available, yeah. how paralyzing for a parent to need help for your kid, and then also considering the impact on your career, how long does all of that take to play out? Well, it certainly depends on functioning. You look at the resources that are available to you in whatever location you are and say, how, how, uh, for how long might we sustain current functioning? How, uh, when is the next PCS date, as we talked about, permanent change of station date? Um, do you have orders yet or not? And where are you going to? If you're, uh, so if within the next year you're going to be PCSing anyway, it probably does not behoove the government to send you just a few months early because it takes three or four months to uproot everyone, find them a location that would be in an area that would have those resources, and then physically move that whole family there. So there's a consideration just about practical logistics and timing. Um, but, uh, uh, but if the needs are so great, it might not matter. Say a child is uh, suicidal, has a severe mental illness that is really requiring uh, uh, or has some uh, impact on safety. And that safety is chronic and difficult to manage in an outpatient basis without, say, a partial hospitalization program or something like that. That could also require a more speedy relocation. 
Um, and so there are a number of different factors with regard to that. But it's the idea of how much need does your dependent have and how can we fit that within there, uh, within our resources that we have. From a family systems perspective, if based on what you've already said, you have some families that if, if it's a two parent home, that there'll be one member that's in the military and one that may have, as you mentioned, kind of more transient in their career, more focused on the home, maybe a stay at home parent, quote, unquote, for the families that have two military members leading the home, um, that are both parents, how do they typically manage childcare? And the demands of I mean, goodness, everything is upside down in the <laughs> pandemic. You know, like, let's just laugh as parents. Um, but outside of pandemic life, there are going to be appointments for the dentist. There are going to be, you know, these things that for any parent are challenging, but particularly for military fam- families, how is that different? Um, well, the military does provide allowance for that. So, you know, met- medical appointments uh, are seen as your duty station uh, or your place of duty for the time. So, again, Healthcare is related to readiness. And so if you can do good routine healthcare, then you maintain readiness. So there's allowance for that. However, for uh, childcare, there is a clear uh, effort to have a lot of childcare available, child development centers um, uh, rolling into school, school rolling into after, uh, uh, most bases have a after school program for school age kids uh, so that, and dual military parents get priority for those placements. So there is a fit. When I said earlier, there are more resources to help support this. That's exactly one of the reasons uh, for that. However, then when you have dual military and you have more resources to help supplement what the parents uh, provide, then you have greater day-to-day distance, um, not only greater demand, but also this is the issue, the, the, the whole idea of uh, quality time. Um, versus quantity time as parenting is, uh, I think, an interesting one because, uh, uh, I mean, even some of the research on parenting suggests that quantity time actually allows for quality to develop rather than you getting quality time on your time because it's the kid's time in receiving it that uh, where quality comes, not what your intent is at the time as a parent. Ooh, can you say that again? That was really powerful. <laughs> so quality time is not based on your intent as a parent that I'm going to do quality time now because it's convenient for me. Quality time emerges from quantity of being with your child because then the child is more ready to receive it when it emerges. You just crushed every parent's heart in the <laughs> pandemic, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Not, I know. So, you know, knowing that every parent has had a slew of challenges during the pandemic unrelated to military life, but then potentially layered on top of, um, that's a really challenging concept that you just brought up. And so it sounds like then if you have these dual military parents, that finding quality time becomes that much more difficult. I think we focus in, and one of the things that I've learned is as far as diagnosis of conditions versus looking at context to explain challenging behavior or difficult patterns of thinking, feeling, and behaving is that a diagnosis identifies a thing within a person, right? Uh, whereas a contextual view says a diagnosis may explain something to direct treatment but may, may not uh, identify the real cause. And one of the things that I 
you know, they're not completely ideological. Now, autism, yes, you got a, uh, you know, got a clear, more developmental, structural type of challenge in which uh, kids are neurally atypical versus typical, right? So there's a structure there. But for things like depression, anxiety, emotional adaptation, behavioral patterns that are difficult, we often fail to look at the pile up of stressors and the context of the relationships that the kids have developed over time as part of those causes of challenges. And I think attachment, parenting, and the idea of early attachment but ongoing attachment within the military is something to always consider as a, a, a factor because of these external strains and other elements of isolation beyond the nuclear family uh, that we have to pay attention to. Um, were parents deployed during a child's early first couple of years of life? Um, how much stress occurred during that to potentially disrupt that early attachment that can then later explain why a kid isn't listening to a parent? Do you, instead of orient yourself around tactically a, and I'll get to that in a second, uh, um, uh, do you orient yourself around more of a uh, recuperate, you know, recouping your attachment versus a strict behavioral plan? You know, what is the quality of the relationship systemically based on that history? Said every family therapist ever, like in what you just said, of like that idea of like, well, my my child should behave. And the therapist is like, well, how is your relationship? For sure. <laughs> yeah, like they're not listening to me. Well, how are things going? So, uh so we're, we're kind of getting into what I think is going to be really the, the, the guts of, so, okay, here are all the challenges for parents, right? Here are all the challenges in military culture. Um, what uh, are aspects of culture that might uh, relate to how you then implement things uh, for, as parents? How might we advise parents? How might we help them organize themselves? Some of the culture of the military, though, is important to know, is that they're really focused on practical matters, action-oriented results-oriented. Um, uh, duty is important. So getting things done often is, you know, people want to join the military because they want to accomplish things, not because they want to think about a lot of things, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, and every branch of the military has clear standards of behavior that are outlined and, and taught. Um, and yet it's happening within a, a idea of what the term respect means, um, and often respect is authoritarian or more autocratic in nature within the military structure because following orders is a potential life or death issue, not it's does it make sense. Um, and so there's a lot of top-down authoritarian aspect or autocratic aspect of that culture, but respect is the authority should get respect just by nature of, of that. Um, uh, but this doesn't mean that military parents are more rigid, but there's this culture of practicality, of standards of behavior, of respect, of following orders, of accomplishing things. And so that is something to be aware of when you're trying to advise parents of what to do. But I also think that in the military, uh, there's a lot of skepticism about mental health um, in the military. I think in part because a lot of military members are subject to that occupational health fitness for duty uh, uh, issue as well and readiness. If I show a weakness, a weakness per se, and I air quote that, um, 
depending on what I say to a psychologist or a social worker or a psychiatrist, if I'm trying to get some help, if I say something that concerns them, I might all of a sudden be restricted from some level of duty, and that could potentially affect my career. So there's some skepticism about how mental health is utilized, and often it's seen as, you know, tree hugger, overly sensitive, you know, all those kinds of things as opposed to action oriented. So there's that kind of culture of, of uh, uh, mixed feelings, if you will, or ambivalence about the use of mental health. Well, and at least what I've seen is the, and I use this term with flexibility, but almost a weaponization of mental health um, in in careers that these things are really closely evaluated. So even if you're non-military, if you are a pilot, you know, th- these are these are important considerations. If you're a police officer, um, certain jobs have these kind of occupational demands that are very different and can really make or break a career. And that's a whole lot of pressure to put on somebody. And the other the other thing I was thinking when you were talking about kind of the the sensitivity, there may be a mismatch between parenting in the kind of top down military model, and a child, for example, who's highly sensitive. So (laughs) that difficulty too, and, you know, speaking as a highly sensitive person with a highly sensitive kid, like, I don't know how I would do in a military home because that I have big feelings. Right. For sure. And and I talk with tons of people who have kids who have big feelings and they're not quite sure how to handle them because they're uh uh, uh they learn discipline in the military, say they you know, and and you just do what you're told. Why is you know, and so um that's there. So what I'd like to do is outline how I've found success in joining with military um, uh, members and how I've understood their thinking. Um, and ultimately, in uh, in the military, basically we have the standards of behavior. You have standards of conduct that is written out by instruction. You will conf- these are orders that you will abide by, and uh, and these are required for uh, regarding uh, how you operate within the workforce to meet the mission. Um, and then there are clear sanctions for not following those. Obviously, in real practice, there are lots of uh, variations because there is sexual harassment that does occur in the military, and that is obviously violating the standards of behavior, the core values, those kinds of things. But there are core values that those are judged against, for sure. It's not just a legal structure outside. Um, So standards of behavior are based on core values, and I'll give you uh, a set of core values um, that are in the Army. They're called leadership values, but it's L-D-R-S-H-I-P. Army, Navy, culture of acronyms, for sure. <laughs> Definitely. Alphabet soup. Absolutely. So, uh, but um, L is loyalty, D, duty, R, respect, S, selfless service, uh, H, honesty, and humility. Humility was recently added. Um, I, integrity, and P, personal courage. So that's a really interesting set of values that is a filter for military members when they're evaluating their performance or other people's performance. And these are actually written out on uh, uh, um, evaluation reviews. How do they live? How does this military member live up to or embody these values? And so it's something that is part of their uh, daily uh, consideration. Um, 
And I always quibble uh, with selfless service because that's hard to be selfless in service uh, because you need a self to be able to serve. Um, but um, on top of those, then the military has a set of really an overall mission. Um, so the overall mission is ready to do the nation's business no matter where, no matter what. Um, but then there are specific strategic missions that are then assigned. So what is your goal for this action? Um, but then you develop a battle plan to address that strategic mission. And then there are rules of engagement. And those rules of engagement are then the tactics that you implement your battle plan with. Um, and so you have standard range of tactics, what is in and outside uh, 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 bounds of appropriateness. You know, there was a big discussion about uh, torture a decade and a half ago and waterboarding and things like that. Uh, uh, so that could be what is a tactic to accomplish a mission. Um, but then there are situational and mission driven, strategic, strategic goal uh, driven tactics. You know, uh, occupying territory could include some tactics that winning hearts and minds uh, uh, would, uh, would work against. You know, and so you have to identify what are your tactics for what your goal is. Um, so all military members get that framework. That's what they live and breathe every day. That's what they're trained to do. And so when I've been able to use that framework to then put parenting ideas into, they then learn evidence-based tactics about how to parent well. Most of the mistakes occur when we focus as parents uh, or advising parents to do this tactic, that tactic, or that tactic, but they fail to look at the overall, what is this family's overall mission? What are their standards of behavior? What are they focused on? And how can we organize it around that first so that they have something upon which they can choose tactics that may work for them as a unique family? So basically, it's, it's taking the framework of a family mission statement effectively mm -hmm. and expanding it using comfortable, familiar military terms and For sure. theories to, to join yes. with a family and present information in a way that may be particularly digestible because it's their marinade. I think it's more than just joining. You know, I think joining is really important, but joining allows for them to receive this and say, it makes sense. Um, and so then what this becomes is a framework for them to implement the tactics that we're then advising them to do. And the whole approach, quite frankly, it's, it's a whole uh, a structure of almost like a manual for doing parenting over time, over the life of your children's lives, over the 20-year career that you have through all of the transitions so that you can create some stability here with your nuclear family. So if we can make the parenting message consistent with how you live your life anyway, and then help you become more explicit with your family values, your family standards of behavior, and then your overall mission, then you can maintain stability through all of these transitions to help become be resilient through them. Yeah, and it's congruent. It fits. It's not a clunky like, you know, scream-free parenting or one, two, three magic. And all of a sudden you're hearing one, two, three all the time and kids get it and they start reacting against it because there's a, an adaptation to uh, that that kids have. Um, 
there, there, I do want to acknowledge that there is a military, def- uh, uh, a parenting prevention program developed for uh, military families that has some good research behind it that incorporates some of this in it. It's not exactly how I've lined it up, but they uh, have done it. It's called a, a Project Focus. Um, uh, there are references on, in the uh, in the materials uh, if people want to look that up. Um, but that's focused on prevention as opposed to utilizing it in a one-on-one way to really identify the tactics lined up for problematic behavior that kids may have. So when you're talking about prevention, are you talking are you talking about like behavioral issues with kids? Or are we talking about abuse? Like it, it sounds like kind of the prevention early intervention versus what you're talking about, which is almost a framework and the um it, it, it is um, uh, prevention in the sense of population prevention for general problems to help parents become more efficient. Um, so Project Focus basically said, how can we help families become more resilient across transitions? Um, and they found that there was good resilience uh, data uh, when that was implemented versus others. But it really is, for the population, a huge effort, um, and it's impractical for individual providers to uh, put into place unless there's the structure behind you, you know. Um, and not every base does it. Uh, uh, not every base is trained on it. Um, uh, so, um, again, all the... Uh, all the evidence-based practices for parenting advice, you know, uh, 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 positive reinforcement and behavior plans and all of those kinds of things are really important as potential tactics to utilize. Um, however, uh, how I work with parents helps to implement them more efficiently, I think. And often the, it's the dependent parent, the non-military parent that implements most parenting plans and hears all of these tactics that we do. Um, Obviously, having a unified and consistent approach among the two parents is better than having one parent being carved out to do the parenting and the other one kind of coming in and out with the absences. And so uh, really what I try to do is I, I try to get um, both the military member to get more buy-in and use this so that the parenting interventions can be more powerful because it's not just left to the stay of the, the caretaker parent uh, to implement these things. And in fact, I emphasize the power and the importance of the military parent being engaged, even in spite of their absences, and how being clear and explicit about their values, standards of behavior, mission, etc., that being explicit, what is typically implicit in a family, um, can actually help uh, uh, those absences not be as painful. As you're talking about that, I'm thinking for a clinician, then working with families or just working with individuals within the family that are military, the challenge for providers then to make sure that you're familiar with enough tactics that meet the demands of that particular challenge, whatever it is. And so I can hear that it's like, well, I'm a therapist and I do this. This is this is the parenting method or this is the you know systems theory that I use and the potential mismatch then with a the military family and the flexibility that would basically be required by providers to be able to do what you're saying, which is to have kind of this um, list of options of various tactics and be able to say, well, let's try this one and see if this helps us complete the mission about these um, at least in my home, the fight's about bedtime. <laughs> sure, sure. And and I think the other aspect of that is that uh, evidence-based practice 
is as a verb rather than as a noun, um, as APA identified back in 2006, that it is the uh, uh, integration of um, good research. Um, uh, what is the other one? <laughs> the other two. I didn't anticipate talking about this, but, you know, it's good research um, uh, integrated with uh, good clinical skill and fitting within the framework of the the, the patients, the the people uh, who you're working with, their um, preferences. Loosely stated, those three elements are really important, and it's knowing what the research is that supports them as tactics but yet being flexible enough to use the ones that fit within the unique patient and within our therapeutic relationship and interaction. And so that's where getting feedback and and having flexibility that you're talking about, about a variety of tactics, helps you fit those, uh, um, uh, those potential tactics into that unique family's culture. For our listeners, uh, Alan and I were talking about this before we started recording. We're both trainers in feedback-informed treatment. And so as Alan is talking about this, is hitting a lot of those points that come out of the research by Dr. Barry Duncan and Dr. Scott Miller about the uh, flexibility of therapy and of, of the therapist particularly and openness to feedback to improving outcomes. There's a lot here in, in what you're saying and basically applying this different framework that is more adaptable to military families because of the demands of their profession and their lifestyle. Again, it's a diverse, also extremely diverse workforce. So if I'm going to be working with this uh, group, I need to be as flexible as I can. And if I'm hired to work with a broad range of people, and I'm the only child psychologist on the island of Guam, that's Yes, I see your mouth dropping. Oh my goodness. So if I, I mean, that includes, you know, there are child providers, but I'm the only specially trained child psychologist on Guam, civilian or military. Um, that means that I have to be flexible to meet that population's needs. I can't be so exclusive that I only do right. love and logic or scream free or magic one, two, three, or whatever, that's my thing. Um, I can't have a thing. I must be flexible in the face of the folks who come. Um, because ethically, there are not a lot of options for them. So I must use feedback in a clear, consistent, and intentional way to make sure that I'm not uh, making mistakes that otherwise I uh, uh, would have been unaware of. No pressure. Uh, no, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's that. But I think that that framing is really interesting in what you're saying. Basically, these families, given the circumstance of being in the military, may have very few options and providers. And so even more so the onus is on the provider to learn different tactics and to have those options to present to families to help them create a parenting plan and a family plan that's actually going to work for them. And I know we don't have a ton of time, but I would like to kind of walk through the how, not just the what, um, so that people have something at the end that they might begin to at least structuring their way. And so when I talk to parents, I say, if we're going to do an overall mission, uh, what's really important is to identify what your mission is. What are, you know, your mission as parents is to grow people up 
but what does that really look like? What is that? What is that specific? Uh, specifically, and if you think about two parents as being, uh, say, two battalions in, uh, no, two companies in a battalion, two subunits in a larger, uh, if they are working uh, uh, with two goals, two sets of goals, or two sets of tactics, or two sets of uh, values or standards of behavior, their parental mission is going to be undermined by their lack of cohesion in their effort. And so ultimately what we want to do is seal that together in an intentional way so that they can be more aligned while working with their kids. Obviously that then becomes translated into parental consistency of tactic and approach. Um, but if you say that, they're going to say, what, what the heck? She, you know, my, my spouse has got to stay at home and take care of the kids. I'm not going to think about it. Well, then you're undermining your message that your spouse is giving by not being aligned. And so how do you do that? So if we frame them as them a unit that they need to be able to communicate efficiently together, we have to be clearly uh, clear and organized around what are your values that you share, not what you don't share. Um, so that's a task to give them. Uh, that that is like, the, what are your shared values? What joined you together as parents? What do you, what do you want to accomplish together, not what you are individually interested in? Also then, based on those values, what are your clear standards of behavior, not just for your kids, but for yourself, so that the values are consistent and you can model them within a social-emotional way, not just demand that kids live up to those, but you live up to them yourself. Because that's what the Army is, the, the, the Navy. Every We have standards of behavior for everyone. And so that's a nice way to implement some consistency and also decrease that likelihood of hypocrisy being taught by parents. Right, right. <laughs> so if then if you have values and standards of behavior, then you clarify your mission by asking and having the parents clarify in their mind what kind of a person do you want your children to be when they're 18. And once they have done that, then you have developed your strategic goal. That's your goal, to develop people that will be that way. So then you develop a battle plan to address whatever you're dealing with right now that is deviating you from having kids be the way you want them to be when they're 18. And that battle plan then allows you to choose tactics that are appropriate and consistent with your standards of behavior, consistent with your values, and that consistently allow you to teach or coach those things through all the transitions that you are. I can hear the effectiveness in the way you're talking about, the way you're presenting it, because for most parents, parenting is extremely challenging. And so you're you're basically framing it in a way that uh, externalizes it and takes the pressure off of the parent or of the couple and just here's the mission, how do we achieve the mission? And that that externalization makes it less personal, less I'm, you know, it's it's bad when I yell or whatever it is, it it makes it more like, but it's not consistent with the mission. And, and I think that kind of narrative, particularly for military families, may be really, really effective. The, and, and I think what it does is that there are some not so great tactics like yelling that in the moment might work partially. Oh, I yelled at my kid. They, I, I got their attention. They paid attention to me. They knew I was serious. But if they, over time, learn that you're only serious when you yell, that then becomes the pattern that you've taught them to ignore you 
because you're yelling. And so then if I can talk about that, that even though a tactic might work in the moment, like throwing a grenade into a home might work to, you know, to uh, take care of a threat. But if you kill the child when you did that inadvertently, you've undermined a larger issue. So a tactic may work for one part of a mission, but not all of it. And so what you want to do is create more efficiency in your choice of tactic. And the way to do that is to see how it aligns with your overall larger strategic plan and goal. What you've outlined here is remarkably simple, but I think in the simplicity, it makes it um, reachable. And that's what I've learned in all the times that I've done uh, and sat in mandatory military trainings about anything is breaking it down and making it as teachable as possible so that it is also usable when you need it so that you have a way of making a decision on the fly so that you know what your foundation is and that you know what your parameters are, but yet you can still improvise within it. And that's ultimately what I think, knowing your values and being clear about them, knowing what your standards of behavior and being clear about them, and knowing what you want to teach and being clear about them, allows you to function in the moment. And I can also hear, I'm guessing as you talk about this, that it gives you an in to address some issues that, as you said, like may interfere with the successful completion of a mission. So not not seeking treatment for a child's mental health problem or for neurodiversity or uh, using being heavy handed with a child and, and the drawbacks of doing that, like you said about yelling, like what works in the short term, but is actually detrimental in the long term, that framework um, being really beneficial. Um, I found it so. I found many more uh, uh, skeptical military members come in uh, and be turned by the use of this framework because then all of a sudden they, they can see. They can be self-reflective. Military members are self-reflective about their actions all the time. They just aren't trained to be self-reflective about personal matters. They're So if you frame it in a way that this is your mission, then it gives them a, oh, I can be self-reflective. I want to be effective. I want to do this well. (laughs) They don't want to be a failure. Well, what parent does? But but, uh, but when a mission is no fail in the military, they spend tons of time training. And after every iteration of training, they are doing what's called after-action reports or hot washes to review what worked, what didn't work. And that is a daily task that's very consistent with feedback-informed treatment in the sense that you have session rating scales. And I call that in my informed consent process, um, I say we do hot washes at the end of sessions. I don't call it feedback for therapeutic alliance. I call it they're, they're hot washes. They're little AARs after every session. And I go, oh, okay. And it's, it's a quick uh, way to establish a feedback loop within that because they're used to thinking critically about how an event occurred. This is so interesting to me. And I think so, um, yeah, just digestible. It's again, it's it's really teachable in its simplicity. Dr. How do people get in touch with you? So again, for our listeners, this is Dr. Alan Sherman. Um, and he's joining us today from Guam. So he's, he's not going to pop in and do a training in Los Angeles, I don't think anytime soon. Um, but how do people get in touch with you and learn more about your work? And what are some of the resources that you recommend to clinicians that are doing this kind of work? 
So how to get in touch with me, um, I do have a LinkedIn profile. Uh, it's um, You'll list it, I believe, uh, yes. on my uh, thing. I, uh, so please just look to the information on the course on Clearly Clinical uh, for that. Um, I would encourage people to really check in with Military Child Education Coalition. Uh, they do a ton of work with regard to helping transitions from military. It's often school-focused um, uh, because that's one of the biggest challenges of transitioning from one school to another to another, but they do a lot of support, have lots of good information there. Um, uh, look at the references that I've listed. Uh, I really do, uh, and have found valuable Lynn Hall's book on counseling military families. It really gets into a lot of the guts of uh, the background. Um, while it is a bit dated, uh, it's probably you know 15 years old. Um, it's still very relevant uh, as far as good information that is in the resources. Um, uh, do know that military families um, have tons of resources available to them. So familiarize yourself to start with militaryonesource.org. Um, you can Google military one source, um, and that is a kind of a clearinghouse reference uh, for families, parents, uh, military connected individuals to contact and get uh, a sense of what resources are available to them in their area, um, uh, as well as if they're transitioning to a new area, they could ask for assistance there. They can get referrals for uh, uh, providers, um, but uh, you as a, uh, as a provider could call them up and just ask some questions as well about what's available to military providers and military families. Thank you. I, I think this has been so helpful, and there's obviously so much more that needs to be said on this topic, but I think you just outlined a framework and kind of set the stage for how to do this and how to conceptualize it. Um, again, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Sherman. It's been really a delight to spend this time with you. And um, thank you also for your service. Thanks a lot. Uh, uh, all credit goes to the folks who are actually putting their lives on the line. I, I uh, just uh, listen to them and support them the best I can. Um, but uh, uh, absolutely a pleasure to have this conversation with you as well. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.